So we have uh, in our study of Romans, as we come back together, on more than one occasion, taken some larger chunks of the text than I would certainly prefer to uh, if uh, circumstances were different. Uh, This morning, that problem becomes even more acute as we look at Romans chapter 3, verses 20, 21, if you will, through the end of chapter 3, which has months and months of sermons in it. Uh, For one thing, somehow we have to unpack the entire first uh, five books of the Bible uh, and understand context and covenant and the law. And then we have to delve into and get into delving into the way in which Christ is the fulfillment and the ongoing reality of that law and how we now participate by faith in the peace with God promised always through the covenants of God. And so I am asking for a lot of prayer this morning as in some way or another, some of the most dense and complicated verses to translate in the book of Romans, which these are, uh, because I believe, and I think the scholars that I've read would agree, that Paul is trying to say so much in seven verses that he is literally unpacking the entire covenant, the Old Testament law, the first five books, the Pentateuch, as he attempts to explain to the church in Rome the ways in which now, because of Christ, the old distinctions that the law created have transcended into a new way that the covenant, which was always supposed to include the whole world, is now capable of including the whole world because of the sacrifice and the blood of Christ shed for us and accepted by faith. There is a lot in these verses, and so I covet your prayers this morning. Let's put the text in front of us. It is Romans chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and start in verse 20. We'll read from 20 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Hear now God's word. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified... In his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? 
Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will, be, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by, his, by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are a God who is the same yesterday, today, and for eternity. We thank you that you have loved us and known us. Lord, we thank you that you have had a covenant with your people. We ask this morning that as we unpack again the truth and richness of what it means to be covenant people, we pray that your word uh, would be preached and anything that is not your word or that is not useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. I am a, a product of the PCA. I am uh, one who was baptized at age 11. I, wasn't, uh, I was born conservative Baptist. Uh, so I wasn't baptized until I was 11 at a PCA church, McLean Presbyterian. I uh, then went to Covenant College, and then uh, from there somehow ended up at a place called Covenant Seminary, and uh, I am a, a product of a covenant-oriented theology and doctrine, not merely reformed in its soteriology, that is to say an understanding that uh, God is, uh, has foreknowledge and that he elects people and that it is all by grace and not by works. There's a certain way in which this term reformed can be used for a way in which we believe God interacts with the individual human heart. And we certainly share an overlap with a reformed soteriology, how the soul is made right with God. But the reason that we are not merely reformed, but that we are covenant people, is that we believe that God has historically, from the very beginning, instituted committed relationships with his people. Ones that were meant individually to, to comfort and to encourage and to create, create individual fellowship, as God had with Adam and as he had with Eve, walking with them in the cool of the day, and that God's covenants were always about intimacy with those created in his image and unbroken fellowship and relationship. And that the second part of his covenant was that we were created in his image and that we were to be like him and to be extensions of what he does, to, to be those who bring covenant realities to the world. This was true in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 2, Adam and Eve are told to go extend the kingdom of God outside the garden. Go out there and get the stuff that's there and make it and shape it. The expectation was not that they spent all their life in the garden, but clearly that the garden was the beginning point, a place of fellowship with God, and then they go out into the world. At that point, wonderfully unblemished by sin and brokenness and decay, that they might take the stuff of creation and in covenant with God, extend his glory and his reign throughout creation. Does that mean it was absent? No, God is everywhere. But there's this participation that covenant people have to bring the reality of God that they are personally and intimately experiencing into a world that needs the same 
intimate experience with the divine, that it should be shaped by the rule and reign of who God is. The challenge is, and this is where we preach the entire first five books of the Bible, that Adam and Eve decided to rule and reign themselves. They broke covenant with God, and that did two things. It broke the relationship. There was no longer an ease and a peace between God and humanity. They hid from Him. They were terrified of Him. Not in an awe sense, but in a, oh, we know that we are at odds now with the divine. That we have asserted ourselves in a way which is outside of our original parameters and agreement and fellowship with God. And what that also meant is that now creation no longer functioned in the same fashion and that they were not bringing the covenant of God of rule and reign into creation, but instead what was happening is that they would sow more and more destruction and pervert the gifts that they'd been given in increasing ways. So even as we see the development of things like poetry and architecture and uh, music, they're always in those first few chapters a tragic reduction and perverse. Sin abounds. You get to the Tower of Babel and instead of building a place for God to be with His people, they're going to invade God's space. We will build a tower to get to God and the whole point was that God breaks that barrier between the spirit, between the heaven, the place of God's dwelling and the material world, the place where we dwell. And it was always meant that God comes to His people. Even in Genesis, uh, we get the understanding that God would come to them in the cool of the day in the tragedy of that Genesis 3 narrative. But instead of expecting and desiring having peace with God, that God would fellowship with them, they are going to go invade heaven and build a tower. Warfare and a perversion of the covenant. No longer bringing God's rule and reign, but theirs. The rest of the first five books unpack God's response. His promises to restore the covenant. And lots of fun debate can be had about whether there was a covenant of works and a covenant of law and 15 other things. What I want to emphasize today is that God's covenant passion of having an individual unbroken relationship with His people and delighting in seeing His children do the family business, participate in being image bearers, creators, restorers, builders, Scientists, artists, architects, poets. All of the things we know God is. His delight in seeing us be instruments of His reign and rule. Taking the stuff of creation and glorifying Him by what we do with it. For His glory and not our own. That has always been God's covenant promise to His people. This is what I created you for, and this is what I will restore you to. Peace with me, and the freedom and the joy of doing good. Doing things that last, that reflect who you are in me. Sin broke that. And God is in the business of restoring His covenant. His covenant 
was initially supposed to come through the children of Israel through Abraham, which is why we're going to talk about him in the weeks to come. But that was always about two things. And the challenge was Israel didn't quite get it. It was not simply that Israel had a procession that was just for them. Access to God through the temple, through the law, a knowledge of the divine in a way that was unknown in the parts of the world that didn't have the law and didn't have the spirit in the same way. That privileged position of peace with God that Israel had was supposed to be then their ability and their marching orders and their strength and their joy and their fulfillment of who they were to extend that peace and be a blessing to all the nations, to bring good and the rule and reign of God in and through the world. But Israel struggled, shall we say. And so we get to Paul. And Paul is talking to a covenant group of people in the Jewish believers in Rome. And he's trying to help them understand how it is both still a blessing, but what Jesus has done through restoring and renewing and expanding and exploding the impact of the covenant of God outside of Israel through the perfect Israelite, that that world has come into being because of the resurrection of Christ, not just his death, but his resurrection. Well, now, E.C., Where on earth is all this covenant language in the verses we just read? Fair question. It is somewhat obscured. And the challenge here is whether or not our honest and well-intentioned translators have somewhat dehistoricized this passage in Romans. And using absolutely true words, but words that take this great truth out of its covenant historical context and make it somewhat, well, in the grand tradition of systematic theology, disembodied. It's like the illustration I used when we started this sermon series about our green beast, our 1970 Ford, sorry, Ford, my stars, Chevy Suburban that is in pieces all around the farm in Wyoming. I hope to put some of those pieces back together next week. Those pieces are all important, and it's good to know the difference between each one of them, but they find their context in being designated and put back together. So what words might have more covenant power or span... Well, it certainly starts with the word dikaiosune, which is often translated justified, although here it is used six times, actually seven if we include verse 20, but it is translated somewhat differently depending upon whether one's talking about God uh, or one is talking uh, about the effects of God's work. So let me read you another translation, which is trying to highlight Paul's explanation of covenant theology in the midst of explaining how Jesus has become the Redeemer that was always promised through the covenants. And now, by faith, we all have access 
to this great covenant promise, whether we are Jew or Gentile. So here's how it would read. But now, quite apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bore witness to it, God's covenant justice, that's a translation of dikaiosune, or otherwise known as justification, God's covenant justice has been displayed. God's covenant justice, verse 22, comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah for the benefit of all who have faith. For there is no distinction, all sinned and all fell short of God's glory, and by God's grace they are freely declared to be in the right to be members of the covenant through the redemption which is found in Messiah Jesus. God put forth, God put Jesus forth as a place of mercy through faithfulness, by means of His blood. I want to stop there. Because if you go to verse 25 in your ESV, uh, you will see that the translation there is, whom God put towards as a propitiation, which is another theological word, which is wonderful and important, and it does mean uh, the significant offering of and the use of blood to set right for the covering of sin. And all of that is true, but there's a context again. There's a covenant context. The covenant context takes us back to the book of Leviticus. It takes us back to the context in which uh, this truth about the mercy seat and the use of blood upon the mercy seat to create... Uh, a status of right before God, both for the high priest and the children of Israel. I encourage you to go back and read the entire chapter of Leviticus 16 uh, this afternoon. But the context, interestingly enough, comes from uh, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. This is a lot of history. I'm trying to go as fast as I can. But I'm telling you, part of the fun of this passage and part of the way that this gets unpacked in a way that seems a lot less weird and bad and ironically and challenging grammatically is the more you know the first five books of the Bible, the more you go, this makes perfect sense. And Paul is jamming in five books of the Bible into six verses about the glory of God's faithfulness through His covenant to restore all creation and His relationship with His people by faith in His work. And so in Leviticus 10, uh, two of Aaron's sons uh, decided to go into the Holy of Holies, which is where the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant was seated, and they did so by not following the rules with strange fire, and they died. In fact, fire came out of the Holy of Holies, consumed them, and that was the end of them. And then we have six chapters about all these ways in which going into the worship of God is about being perfect and without blemish. And there are a lot of interesting texts there and odd things that are described, uh, everything down to uh, skin and uh, various maladies that someone might have and deformities. And the whole point of that is when we come into the worship of God, it is in the way in which he prescribed and it is to be perfect and holy and without blemish. And then in Leviticus 16, he begins to uh, explain to Moses and to Aaron how they will use a bull and two goats to properly on an annual basis enter the Holy of Holies 
and how the priest will be made right so that he can stand in the presence of God and how they will use the blood of the goat and both the blood of the bull and both the blood of the goat will be used on the mercy seat so that God's people might live in his presence around the tabernacle and so that the priest, their representative, could make it in and out of that holy place without being consumed. And we had the promise of this then in the Gospels when that great curtain in the temple which reconstructed the tabernacle was ripped. And that there's something that happens in the work and the sacrificial work of Christ and the pouring out of His blood that gives us access in a way that none of the bulls or the goats would have ever been able to accomplish. And what Jesus has become is this wonderful both and. He is both the mercy seat itself, which is what that Greek word means. It is the same Greek word that is used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, where it is translated the mercy seat. It's the same Greek word that is used in the Old Testament in the passages like Leviticus 16. Jesus is both the blood that represents us so that we can stand in front of the mercy seat, and He is the one fulfilling and making the mercy seat Himself. He is both. It is why Hebrews goes on and on about how Jesus has made all of those oddities of the sacrificial system, yes and amen, and all of their odd meanings purified and simplified in the beauty that Christ is both the place where mercy is received and He is the offering that makes mercy possible through faith in Himself. And if you're a Jewish person and you're reading these words that they would have translated in their head more in line with the first five books of the Bible and less in line with somewhat newer words about justification and righteousness. How do we know God's right action? He works in line with His covenant. That's why that translation makes sense. It's no less than righteousness, but what kind of righteousness? Well, it's God's covenant righteousness. It's His feeling faithful to His promises that He would restore the personal relationship and that we would be restored to those who bring kingdom. We would get to do what it is we were always created to do again. To do good. Augustine had it absolutely right. In Christ, before He returns, the possibility to do good is restored to us. We can do covenant work and bring peace and kingdom. And so what Paul is doing in these amazing and rich and powerful verses that you could spend so much time going back and forth to the covenant law and seeing how God is fulfilling it in Christ and how all of those ways in which what Paul says at the beginning of our text that the law pointed to Christ. And he doesn't come up through the law. He doesn't come as one who has to earn it. But because he is the covenant representative, of course, everything that he does is in line with the law. That's what Paul means here when he says that uh, it is not by the law, uh, by the, but it is um, not contrary to the law. Jesus doesn't do the works of the law because he needed to. Jesus does the works of the law because it's who he is. So he is not justified by the law, 
But because he is the embodiment of the law, nothing he does is contrary to God's law. That's why Paul keeps saying, I'm not undermining the law. We don't set aside the law. Jesus isn't abolishing the law. He is the one, he is the mercy seat. He is the covenant God. He is the covenant mediator. He, of course, didn't violate the law. He upholds it. But he didn't have to check the boxes of the law to get saved. He didn't have to check the boxes of the law to make God like him. He didn't bring salvation by submitting himself, if you will, under the law. But coming as the author of the law, he fulfills the law. Hence the reason that the law, that is God's right call to covenant faithfulness, is not eliminated. It is expanded to the Gentile. The covenant is now being fulfilled that was given to Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. And that is what Israel failed to do. It is what Jesus did and it's Paul's calling for the church in Rome that the Jew and the Gentile would come together and that the Jew would understand that they did have great blessings in Christ, but just being Jewish isn't a plus if you're not in line with the covenant law. You can be uncircumcised in your heart even though you're circumcised in the flesh. And there are those who are coming into the church who were the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that we would be a blessing to the nations and they are physically uncircumcised but they are circumcised in their heart by faith in Christ. This is a joyful, though sobering, recitation of the faithfulness of God through the eons of human existence, through His covenant right actions, why He has been justified in judging sin that rebelled against Him and destroyed creation and what it meant to be image bearers, and why there was no way we were going to be able to do enough to set things right. And why those bulls and goats only pointed forward to, they couldn't actually cover the sin. The only blood that would cover those sins that were set aside and ceremonially addressed by the bull and the goat are now fully addressed in the sacrificial blood of Christ on the cross. That forbearance no longer needs to be forbearance because Christ's blood is sufficient to cover the ones in the past, the ones now, and for however long He tarries, the ones in the future. And it is by faith that the one who is the mercy seat and the sacrifice is sufficient. Which of course means there is no room for boasting. If we are recipients of God's generational faithfulness, His willingness and commitment in His character and His nature to restore and to be just, to be righteous, and to give us a righteousness not of our own making, to justify us as part of His covenant, and that is done by faith, then boasting is set aside, Paul says. And it makes sense. It doesn't matter whether I was born in the church or converted later. It doesn't matter whether I have memorized my shorter catechism, which is a plus. 
or whether I have failed to do so. Those things don't make me right with God. Only faith in Christ makes us right and restores our covenant relationship with Him. Artists suggested last night that this, as a whole, was a feather, fairly heady theological sermon without much practical application, which isn't exactly true. But it's a fair comment. And I could stay just reveling in Old Testament references and how these wonderful words play out and unpack the richness of a God who is intimately involved with His people and refuses to give up on them or His creation and this is what sets us up for what will happen in chapters 5 through uh, 8 where we get to hear about this new covenant and new creation in even greater depth and form as Paul unpacks the implications of what it means to have this mercy seat covered. That the mercy seat is Christ and that Christ himself is the offering that cleanses us from all of our sins. What is the possible application today? First century Jews, along with most of the tragic history of Israel prescribed in, or described in Scripture, is that they had an understanding that because they had the temple and because they had those ceremonies, they had a relationship with God. And every time they would come to the temple, there was this sense in which they would do what they were supposed to do. The question mark was, did going to the temple affect the rest of their week or the rest of their year? And the challenge was that it didn't, that they didn't understand what was happening when God was restoring His covenant and then saying to them, now go out and be instruments of peace. Go out and be my people in and through the world. Not just that you have personal salvation with me as a Jewish people individually and corporately, but you are supposed to be the means by which the world is blessed. And we have maybe one fleeting example with Solomon where the world came to Israel and saw the wisdom of God and it lasted but a moment and it was gone. If we in our life in the church, see what happens on Sunday morning is a religious box to check where we are reaffirmed in our theology, our beliefs, and we sing some hymns, and we have communion, and the impact of that is sort of we did our religious thing. Then we are heading down the road and the challenge of the Israelites. Because the question is, once we are in right relationship with God covenantally, are we then also acting covenantally? Bringing peace into the world around us? Or do we evolve, devolve in the same way that Israel did once it left the temple into, by and large, worldly pragmatism? We read again in Isaiah, and it's, it, it becomes annoying, uh, how often God talks about the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate. How often... The pragmatism of what was supposed to be revealed in worship that God is a God of the weak, that God is a God of the people in need, whether they're strong physically or outwardly or whether they are weak inwardly. 
God restores those relationships, creates with peace. There is no one righteous, not even one. Therefore, I can go out into a world of unrighteous people knowing that I'm no better apart from the grace of God. And that I extend the same peace that I experience in worship to those who don't agree with me and those who are not believers. Even if they are my enemy, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I can extend covenant grace to them the rest of the week. The warning of why being a Jew doesn't much help could apply to the church here today is that if we see what we do on Sunday as a box checked, but having gone through the call to worship, and now I could preach an entire sermon on the liturgy that we've just been through and how it is meant to be a form for you for the rest of your week. Do you know you've been welcomed by God and therefore do you welcome others? Have you again been reminded of the glory and the holiness of God? Have you reveled in His beauty and His joy? And have you called others to experience the same glory and joy? And when you recognize the otherness of God, are you humbled to be reminded that it is not of your own strength, but it is of God's will that you exist? And so we confess our sins and we confess our need and then God restores us and forgives us and reminds us of that. Is that what your week is marked by? And then when you have the opportunity to hear God's word read and to encourage people with the word of God throughout the week. And as we enjoy fellowship around the table, does that mark the hospitality and the way in which you extend peace? and the breaking of bread with others? Does what you do here in covenant relationship with God impact the covenant relationship that you bring out into the world? Tragically for Israel, it didn't regularly do so, which is why the prophets keep saying the same thing over and over again. You stopped understanding your worship of me, and therefore you stopped being able to care for anybody but yourself. You went out into the week uh, after worship and you were pragmatic. And you took care of you and yours. And you had resources for so much more. You had forgiveness and love and mercy and grace and generosity. And it is when God's people do what is so often true through safe families and other ministries that we are a part of, that we can build on that reality that what happens here then permeates the way we live in and through our communities. And the joy that that is part of what it means to have full access to the mercy seat, to know that the blood has covered And that there is no boasting, there is just rather the opportunity. As he says at the end of verse 31, do we overthrow the law? Is the covenant expectation overthrown? Absolutely not. The law of God's love and mercy and his calling in the world to see it built the way he always wanted it and designed it to be done. The promises of the covenant, that law we uphold for the glory of God and for the love of the world. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. Heavenly Father, again, you are gracious and you are patient and you are gentle and you are kind. And you are committed to your covenant. We ask, Lord God, that we would delight in the fullness and the practicality of peace with you that we might extend covenant peace to the world around us. May we see that, Lord, in the simple, in the profound, in the humble and the grand, but all for your glory. In Christ's name.